This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. As we approach the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Natasha Trethewey has been thinking of the hurricane's aftermath on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, where she spent much of her childhood and where her part of her family still lives. And she's been thinking of the hurricane's aftermath on her family. Her brother spent a year in prison. Her grandmother sheltered from the storm in a public school and was never able to return home. Her house was unlivable after Katrina, and she was too frail, disoriented, and undernourished after the storm to continue living alone. Trethway won the Pulitzer Prize for her book, Native Guard. Many of the poems were about growing up biracial in Mississippi and Georgia. After her mother and stepfather divorced, her stepfather murdered her mother. Trethaway's new book is called Beyond Katrina, a meditation on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Natasha Trethaway, welcome back to Fresh Air. You know, in, in, in your book Beyond Katrina, you write that, you know, your grandmother was a, a God-fearing woman. And when Hurricane Camille uh, destroyed the church across the street, but only partially destroyed your grandmother's home, she took that as a message. What was the me- message for, from, from God that she interpreted? Well, she felt that she had been spared, and having been spared, had a greater call to duty, and so um, began to do as much as she could for the church. Um, For example, making the draperies, these huge red velvet draperies for the baptismal font. Um, She also... um, allowed the church to park its bus in her driveway. The church didn't have its own driveway. Um, She became even more devoted because she thought she had been spared. Is that the church she was buried in? Yes. Do you, you, you describe yourself as not a religious person, but do you ever wish that you could have religion like your grandmother did and therefore find some kind of holy meaning in the most horrible things that have happened? I think, you know, she had such a faith, and it, it, I understood it as a great comfort to her. And there are times that I think, that I wish I had such a comfort. I remember when she was being remembered at her service, the preacher looking directly at me and saying, grieve not as others grieve. He was sermonizing about how the faithful don't have the same kind of grief because they know that there is something else. And so I felt indicted. as he looked at me and said, grieve not as others grieve, as if he was pointing to me and saying, I know that you are not the faithful, and because of that, you have a different kind of grief. The wrong kind. (laughs) And were you changed by that at all? Oh, I was angry. Angry at him for making you feel that way when you were grieving. Yes, I I As if there were a wrong kind of grief. (laughs) I, I think I wanted... I wanted remembrance of her, and I wanted comfort. I mean, I think funeral services are for the living in some ways. They're to remember the dead, but 
in the face of the living beloved. And so I didn't feel comforted. Reality, um, reality gets skewed in the midst of a crisis, or at least our perception of it. I remember somebody telling me that at one point in time. Don't, I think what follows the corollary from that is, so, so don't trust your gut in a crisis. And um, I think what I want to argue with everything I have is that that is exactly wrong. And so if, if, I, if I'm wrong here, I'm going to now go ahead and just waste 30 minutes of your life. So I apologize for that in advance if I'm wrong. But I don't think I am. I think that in crisis, a, a lot of pretense gets put off. And, and the thing that we want the most is the thing that's the most important. And Natasha Trathaway has this dead on. In the midst of a crisis, the thing that we want is comfort above everything else. Everything else, comfort is what we want. But it takes a crisis to move us, to get rid of that pretense, to let go of our sort of well-oiled machinery that keeps you know, this matrix going. It takes some crisis to break that down. It, it, Hollywood knows this, that in order to get a character to go from point A to point B, you have to introduce some crisis or drama. If you just look at the Oscar nominees from this year, it was a great year for movies, I think, and got to see a lot of the Oscar-nominated movies. And I wrote the three that, uh, that kind of came off the top of my head here um, really quickly that, to show you that it takes a crisis to move a character. There was the winner of the best picture, right? The king's speech. Don't know if you saw that. But here's the story of a king, the king of England, who, early, who in the middle of last century um, came to the throne in kind of an odd way. Um, wasn't the first pick, wasn't the eldest son, but made it there anyway. He was a, a person with a severe speech impediment. He had a terrible stutter. Couldn't carry a, a, a normal conversation, a conversation on without stuttering. Ter- terribly... Uh, demoralized by that, couldn't, wouldn't go out in public, wouldn't speak publicly, and so he's sort of this silent prince, and then he became the king. And as, as fate would have it, if, if that's the sort of thing that we believe in, then as fate would have it, he came to this moment in England's history where England was facing Adolf Hitler across the channel, about to begin the Battle of Britain where they, they bombed London, killed thousands of people. And the moment came for him to make a speech, a speech that needed not to just be good, not to just be adequate, it needed to be a speech that would rally the whole country of England against the four, all the forces of evil personified in the Nazi terror. And in that crisis, he got it. Not only did he make that speech, the movie's about how he nailed the speech, but it took tremendous amount of work. He had to, he had to face his fears. He had to go headlong into letting go of all the things that he believed about himself, what he believed about other people, and out of that, by letting go of all those old things, came this speech that moved the whole country forward. My favorite movie of the year last year was a little movie called Winter's Bone. In that movie, the hero or the heroine is a 17-year-old girl whose father has used their family farm to post bail on a drug charge, and then he goes missing. He's been involved with some unsavory characters that are uh, cooking meth, in uh, northern Arkansas or southern Missouri out that way in the hills. And she has to go find her father or she'll lose the farm 
and her mother and her siblings and herself will be on the road. Off on the, there's no streets. They'd be on the dirt roads, I guess. And so she has to face down these murderous meth lab types, that crisis to move from point A to point B. And then there was Toy Story 3, where a group of abandoned toys got to pull together to fend for themselves against uh, those abusive kids at the Sunnyside uh, Daycare Center. It's a great drama. It's unlikely that you're going to live a life that's that large. You know, you're not the king of England, at least not yet. Um, you're not, I hope, going to have to face down uh, meth lab uh, runners in, uh, in order to find your father's body and ransom your farm. And Tom Hanks is never going to, to do the voiceover for you, your life in a cartoon um, when that comes up eventually. But um, you will have tremendous crisis. If you haven't, you will. You will face cancer. You will face divorce. You will face bankruptcy. You will face loss. You will face the loss of a loved one. You will face some kind of difficulty. And in those moments, the pretense of life, like I was saying, will just be stripped away. And what will come is a desire that's more visceral than, than anything. It'll be more visceral than your, than your desire for your wayward spouse. It'll be more visceral than your, desi- visceral than your desire to have your breasts back. It'll be more visceral, visceral excuse me, than your desire to have money. And it'll be more visceral, visceral than to, the desire to hold the hand of the person that's gone before you in death. What will come is a desire, what Trethaway says, for comfort. And to be comforted. To have somebody or something to come alongside you and to hold your hand and to listen to you and to speak kindly to you and to tell you that you will be remembered when you die. You will want comfort. My friend uh, Amy Cole has this great quote. Amy knows a little bit about uh, transformation. That's kind of her specialty in life. And in talking about crisis in the past, one of the things that she said is that, you know, when we're in crisis, the thing that we say over and over is, help me, help me, help me. And the way God responds typically is, I love you, I love you, I love you. That is comfort. And Trethaway is right. It's what we want at the very bottom of our core. But if we want it so bad, what we find out usually, at least at the beginning of a crisis, is that it's not particularly accessible. Getting comfort is difficult because we've got some ideas about the modes of how it should come to us, what our expectations of God, that he needs to solve our problems, or that he's, he's, he's completely absent. And, and those kinds of notions, uh, working in those old patterns, just are not the vehicles, not the way that comfort wants to come to us. Um, the process requires a huge amount of change. If we put, I'm going to say something here, I'm a little off track, but I don't think I'm too far off track. Hope is a big problem in our lives. It's a big problem. We, we need to get hopeless about our lives. That sounds counterintuitive, but very often we've got hope in the way we've been maneuvering situations and the ways that we've been going forward. And when crisis comes, the opportunity is to realize that's never going to work again. And we've got to give up hope in those old systems. We've got to get hopeless. 
We've got to let the ground be turned so that something new can come, something new can be planted, and some lasting, more mature form of hope, something that really breeds confident expectation in our life, not like hoping that the weather's going to be better tomorrow, but being confident that we're going to some new place that's better and it's fuller, it's full of life. It might be difficult, but it's what we want. And so we have to let go of that and, take, and be willing to move towards the, the new thing. But that means change. And when we hear change, everything in our bodies shakes. It's like holding up a big red sign that says, Danger! Danger! Change is coming. And we don't like change. You know, when crisis first comes, very often there's this moment of being stunned. I remember when my, my father died. This is just insane. But when my father died, the hospital called. And my mother took the, took the call. And uh, when she kind of did a yes, 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 yes. And then she hung up the phone and she said, he's dead. And she went and she, nailed, she kneeled down in front of this chair and I got down with her and I swear, I thought, oh, he can come back to life. That's crazy. That, that's hope in something that's hopeless. There's that kind of denial, that kind of stunned denial. Or it can, it, can look, it can look like this. Some folks, um, myself included, um, when that stunning moment comes, I'm a busy person, so I can just get busier. I can just numb it with my busyness. And that will keep you from asking me, hey, Kurt, are you okay? Because you'll think, hey, man, he's busy. He must be all right. But maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're more the quiet type. And maybe when you're stunned, you'll just go silent. You'll just lurk around the edges hoping not to be noticed. And listen, it's easy in life to not be noticed. Nobody will check in with you. You'll just fade to black. Those are all ways that when we're stunned, we behave. Then, after some period of time, confusion comes. Because we keep trying to, you know, pull the, the bars back and forth, the handles back and forth. We're trying to steer it. We're realizing we're steering over here, but we're still going over here. I was listening to... Uh, you two on the way in, you know, it's like, are you really ready to let go of the steering wheel? Because the thing is going in a completely different direction than it should be going based off of all the ways you've had your life ordered and it's worked in the past. And that brings this confusion. And it brings a moment of decision. What I, what I love about Natasha Trethewey's interview there is that she's, com- she's completely honest. I think she's completely transparent and when, when you hear her, her voice break there's that long pause in there i realized during the first service just how long that pause was i didn't recognize it the first time or the times i listened to it on the internet it's long and and the teaching team selected that that section in fact indeed this in, this entire series came out of this interview because that pause is the the sound of a of a woman being struck. The sound of, of someone who's breaking. The sound of someone who thinks, maybe what got me here isn't working and is desperately wanting something more, some more compelling story that brings comfort and it's just not there. It's certainly not there in the preacher. She didn't, she didn't get it from him. It, it, it's no more in Terry Gross who has sort of a, I don't know, sort of a, a snippety kind of, I think a little bit of a judgmental spin on life herself, and at least in this interview, and I love Terry Gross. 
Maybe it's there in the grandma, but it's inaccessible. And, and Trethaway is not able to dredge it kind of up out of her stomach. But there's the desire, there it is in the gut, to want comfort, to want to know comfort. There is a story, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, let me start, say something before I start down the story. And this is a talk for doubters, and all of us can put ourselves in that category, whether we are Christians or, or not Christians or checking it out or, or you know, whether we're, we're a can of tuna, whatever you are, whatever you are, whoever you are, we are doubters, and that is good, and it is okay, and I'm not going to say that, what I don't want to argue, what I don't want you to hear me arguing, I'm going to move to a, tech, a story in the Bible. And what I don't want you to do if you're a doubter is to turn off right now and say, oh yeah, of course, I'm in church, so now here comes the Bible. What I want to say is that this, my argument is this, in your gut, you want comfort. You want the right thing. Go with that. It's true. It's real. It's the right thing. It's honest. And what you're going to find is about this story in the Bible is that it's going to tell your story too. Over time, probably if you know enough stories out of the Bible, what you realize is it's pretty much true. And this is how we come to find out that the Bible is reliable. It will resonate. There's this story about Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, in the early pages of the Bible in Genesis 3 through 8. You know the story? God creates man and woman. He puts them into the Garden of Eden. He tells them not to eat of this uh, tree of, uh, of life, or excuse me, tells them, excuse me, tells them not to eat the, the, um, this, this one tree, and uh, because they have eternal life, tells them not to eat the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, and of course what they do is they're, they are uh, deceived by a, by a serpent, by Satan, and they eat of this tree. So now there's this dilemma. They're in this place in this moment when the story occurs where they have life. They're gonna, they're, they're, they know good from evil, it's a really bad moment. And here's the well-oiled machine, I think, that's falling apart for them. At this point in time, I think that it's part of their fall. They imagined God to be withholding. Because when the serpent came to him, one of the things he said is, surely God won't this. You'll be like him if you, you know, take and eat this fruit. And they were kind of like, yeah, that's right. He doesn't want us to... He didn't want us to take that because he's withholding. So now, they're in the garden, fallen, and God shows up. And here's how he comes. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said, Where are you hiding? I think this is remarkable. Where are you hiding? Like, like God doesn't know where they're hiding? Omnipotent, omniscient, created the garden. Of course God knows where they're hiding. This is, this is God calling to them to come out to him. Why are they hiding? They said, the Bible says that they, they knew that they were naked and ashamed. That, that is language for they felt vulnerable. They felt vulnerable. And they, and they didn't know, they believed that this God was, you know, sort of withholding their father and I think that they didn't know if they were going to get a slap at the back of the hand or, you know, what were they going to get in his first approach. But what he brought was, where are you hiding? And he calls them out. It must be very disappointing for God. It must have been a disappointing moment for God when they made the choices they made. But in spite of that disappointment, God's first lean, 
hear me say this. God's first lean in his disappointment is not to ignore you and it's not to slap you with the back of his hand. God's first lean is to come to your side and to give you comfort. The Bible makes maybe the most audacious statement possible about transformation. The Bible says that more powerful than shame, more powerful than your will, more power than any effort anybody can make, the most powerful thing to transform you is comfort. It's the love of God. And so God comes to us in gentleness. C.S. Lewis said, describing the way that God comes to us to conquer us, is that he's a God who kneels to conquer, that he gets down and he kneels when he conquers us. Not because we're small, but because he actually kneels in tenderness to conquer us. Now, you, you can look at the story and you can say, okay, great. But, but that story is, you know, that tragedy is of the self-inflicted type. What, what, what about people in Japan? I mean, come on. What about people in Libya? We got a, 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 it's been a hard couple of weeks on the planet. And it's been a hard couple of weeks here at Warehouse for a lot of people. You know, so, so where is God in that? You know, is he giving us the back? Is this retribution? Is this payment? Is he off the clock? You know, what is going on? That is not an easy thing to answer. But, but what I would say is that no matter what the situation, whatever the source of vulnerability, God's first response is to move in next to you, is to come alongside of you. It's in his name. In the New Testament, when, uh, when Christians talk, when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, who's the person of God who comes and lives inside of us and empowers that transformation and makes us children of God. The, 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 uh, one of the names for the Holy Spirit in Greek is the word paraclete, which means one who comes alongside to help. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll know that when you read the Old Testament stories, one of the things that you see there is that there's this whole big weird deal about how you know, they were followed by this, uh, this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night, and that when they set up this big huge tent that they called the a tabernacle, that, that, this, that, that God resided in the midst of that tent. It was always the desire of God to reside alongside or in the midst of his people. And the story goes from Eden, from Eden all the way to Revelation that way, how God is trying to get up next close to his people. It's in, the, in, in two stories that I, I just, I find really personally moving. One is as, as Jesus entered Jerusalem in the days before his death. He, um, people were, he, he was moved with compassion for the trouble that, that the people in Jerusalem were enduring. And at some moment he said, Jerusalem, he said, people, people of Jerusalem, oh, if, if you had, if, if you would have only had me, I would have been like a mother hen and I would have just covered you with my wings. And the image there is, is you know, sort of is like of a ground fowl, really, who, who out in the wild when her chicks are in danger, when a hailstorm or when a hunter's coming, her response is to gather chicks underneath her wings and to protect them, even at the risk of her own life, to draw them close in the midst of danger, not to hit them, not to smack them around, not to let them make it on their own, but to cover them and, and to pull them close. And the other story is that when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, when, this, when the bad news of Lazarus' death came to Jesus, his first response was, was not to raise him from the dead. His first response was not to fix it. 
in, in two, the, the easiest verse to memorize in the Bible in two words, Jesus with his action, his first action in the midst of tragedy, describes his character, the character of God. He says, his, his biography wrote, biographer wrote, Jesus wept. We have a comforting God who weeps with us in our crisis and our tragedy. That is a remarkably different God from the one I think I imagined at the beginning of some crisis, but, but there it is. I got one story I think that'll sort of bring this idea that comfort is the thing that can change us. Uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> told me this story recently. This blows my mind because it'd be so different than the experience I would have had with my parents. But uh, his kids were upstairs. He has teenage kids. They were upstairs. They were doing their homework one night. He decided to go up and check and see how the homework was going. So I went up and checked on him. Went to his son's room and found out not, not only was his son doing um, his biblical studies paper, he was doing extra credit surfing porn. And um, so there was that. And so uh, my friend said his son quickly, you know, clicked off the pages or whatever. He was hiding. He was hiding. In his personal apocalypse, he was hiding. So my friend at that moment had to decide what to do. Shame. You could shame him. That, that's certainly a good option, it seems like to me. Um, you could just walk out of the room, just act like you're disgusted. That's a possibility as well. You could yell. There are all kinds of options you could go with. As he stood there, what he remembered was how um, he'd heard his pastor talk a week or two earlier, telling the story at Christmas about, actually quoting Frederick Buechner, about how this God was, was happy to come and, and come into the midst of the smell of the dung and the sweet smell of the animal's breath to come and to live in their world. And he thought, ah, this is my son's dung in life, and I've got to go and be with him. And so he walked in, he pulled up a chair, and he sat down next to his son, and there was some silence. And then he said, I really love you. You don't know how much I love you. And I, I'm happy to just sit here and be with you. And whatever. So if that's what you want to do, do it. I'm here. That is a remarkable response. Would that change you? I think so. I think that what I would really prefer would be judgment because then if I got punished, there would be, it would be equal. I did something wrong. You gave me something back. We're all equal. We're equals. But this is a God who comes and comes into our crisis and makes everything unequal so that we owe him everything and he owes us nothing. Grace is a different kind of equation and that's why we're, uncom- we're uncomfortable with it. We would prefer justice over grace. Grace makes us uncomfortable. It's supposed to make us uncomfortable. That's the catalyst for change, to be uncomfortable. I want to connect some of the dots, not as well as Natasha uh, Trethaway can do, but I want to connect some of the dots from Natasha Trethaway to this story in Eden, to my friend's story, to, to Jesus' story. And the story I want to jump all the way forward to is Jesus' death and crucifixion. You know, if you go all, all the way to that point, what you find in the Bible is that the Bible does not have five ways to solve your crisis. It doesn't even have ten ways. It doesn't have 50. In fact, if it did, it, we would, it would be trivializing our suffering and our, and our, and our struggle 
And the Bible never trivializes your life. And so what the Bible shows us at the end is that in order to deal with this problem of crisis and struggle and sin and suffering, that, that instead of solving it, putting a neat bow on it, God just comes and gets alongside of it, just gets into it. And when you think about it, you think about Jesus' death, and you, you think about there he is on this hill outside of a town. You know, on a, this, this was the garbage heap where he was crucified. Was, that way it was a short distance from the body to be, to be thrown out. And, and there's Jesus hanging on his cross, and, and there are these two rebels alongside of him. You know, in this story, it's interesting. You can make these connections. In the first story in Eden, there, the man and the woman are naked. In this story, it's God who's naked. It's God who's naked. In, in the first story, um, it's God who comes and who slays an animal. This wasn't in the part we read, but after that part, it talks about how God came, slays an animal, sacrifices an animal, and covers covers them so that they won't feel vulnerable, so they won't be ashamed. And, and, and at Christ's death, what's happening is that not only is Christ naked, nobody covers him. And so his sacrifice is, the, is all of our shame. It's the sum total of all the shame for all the ages. And that's why when Christ cries out, why have you forgotten me, Father? Why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the Father who he'd been one with has turned his head. It's, in the second story, it's the Father who's hiding. Jesus did that so that we would never have to hide. So we would always be comforted. So we would know the totality of our forgiveness. The power to be transformed and the power to be resurrected. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected in power so that we can walk in newness of life. And to receive that, all we have to do is accept him as our comforter, as one who's come alongside of us, and to lay down those old those old ways of doing things. There are two rebels on the cross next to him. The first one says, Jesus, if you, are, if you are who they say you are, if you're really the Messiah, bring yourself down and take us with you from these crosses. He mocks him. He doesn't really believe that. He's just heaping mock on him. And the other rebel says, are you crazy? This man has done nothing wrong, and yet he's dying up here. What is wrong with you? And then he turns to Jesus and he cries out in his last minutes, Jesus, save me. Save me. When you die, receive me into your kingdom. And Jesus says, indeed, you will enter into the paradise today. A God that came alongside. What I hope we've been struck with today is this. God is not distant from us in crisis. He is, in fact, near to us. He is able to speak to us. We can smell Him. We can touch Him. We can taste Him. 
He is within us. He's available to anybody who will simply say, yes, come, come be alongside me. Be struck by that truth and have comfort. Let's pray. God, thank you for today.